Bujun and Dinoe Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Welcome to the final episode of season one of the Native Seed Pod. We are so happy to have you all joining us. It has been an amazing first season of exploring what it means to um, have conversations around indigenous foods and seeds and food sovereignty and land and water and relationship and connection. And it is really a special honor to have this final episode around the historical work of the Cultural Conservancy and the work we have done um, in the world recording these types of conversations and these oral histories. I'm really delighted we're here at the end of the season, approaching winter solstice and harvesting for the winter time. And we brought in some special guests to really feature some of these stories that we've harvested over the years of native peoples talking about what their foods mean to them, what their lands mean to them. And so with me is one of our longtime partners at the Cultural Conservancy, Nicola Wagenberg. Hello. Hey. Hi. So good to be here with all of you. So great to have you join us, Nicola, because you've been with us for decades and you were a key leader in our project we did 15 years ago, documenting the different stories of Native people all around Turtle Island. Yeah, we did this about 15 years ago with you, Melissa, and Lorita Valdez as part of a, a larger project of documenting Native people around Turtle Island. And uh, we did some amazing recordings. We recorded about 30 different people. Absolutely. And we were one of the first Native partners to slow food. And the slow food movement in Italy and around the world was just kind of sprouting up and, and gaining some attention. And of course, as Native peoples, we said, we have to be at the table. We need to be talking about these issues. Winona LaDuc was an early leader of the slow food movement and was a key part of this work that we are continuing today. Uh, but we got this grant as part of a co coalition of groups to honor America's food traditions. And these were some of the recordings that we completed, and we're happy to uh, give them and offer them to you all today. Yeah, we interviewed chefs, we interviewed food uh, growers growing different diversity of seeds, we interviewed uh, folks uh, on the front lines doing anti-GMO work from all the way from Hawaii to New Orleans to uh, the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes, Martha's Vineyard, California. 
Absolutely. And so, Nicola, you and I are so much a part of this project, having been inside of it and uh, had the honor of working with these different people on the ground. Uh, we thought it would be really exciting to bring in one of our longtime friends and and partners who does wonderful audio and cultural arts work. And that's Eddie Madrill, because we love having conversations with Eddie about many different issues relevant in Indian country. And and we thought he'd be a wonderful uh, friend and ally to talk about what it means to revive and review these these traditional recordings in a modern context. Well, thank you so much, Chukwetesia uh, and Leo Sanchanya, Leo Sanchanyam to everybody. Thank you so much for having me here, Melissa and Nicola and Sarah. Um, to be part of the conversation. I think it's really exciting not just to be here, but to learn uh, from your podcasts, from the TCC work over the generations. Uh, I've been here in Northern California all my life, so a few decades. And uh, just learning about food is exciting because I like food. <laughs> Who fun doesn't? To, fun to learn about yeah. food. And, and along with the, the fun, it's also very interesting and educating and kind of humbling uh, to learn from many, many, um, you know, wisdom keepers and, uh, and culture bearers around food. So it's uh, really, really exciting. So if it's okay for me to ask, tell me a little bit more about what it means to have like these culture bearers, these, uh, these uh, storytellers, these oral narratives that um, have come from generations and even the ones that, you know, kind of expose us to, to things today. Yes, thank you, Eddie. I, it's such a great question to really honor the, the voices and elders of the past. And fortunately, many of the people we interviewed 15 years ago are still alive and well and amazingly doing the same work. You know, there's a lot of struggle regarding food sovereignty. So many of our foods have uh, gone dormant, have been become endangered. Um, we can no longer gather them. And so throughout the generations, uh, everyone has different foods that we protect and that we work to protect. So we're going to be hearing from people who are blessed with access and a direct intimate relationship with their first foods. But some people are not as fortunate and have only tasted these foods on special occasions or maybe when they were children. And yet others have never tasted some of these foods and only hear about them from stories from their grandparents. So we feel it's very critical to keep alive even the stories and the spirit of these plants, these foods, these medicines, even if you can't eat them and put them on your uh, plate at night. So who's, uh, who's the first person we're going to be listening to? Because I think we're going to be listening to some recordings, some archive recordings. Well, I think in the spirit of, of honoring the lands upon which we stand, the lands upon which we do our work, and the first place that most of us sitting in the circle today call home, California, it makes a lot of sense for us to start with amazing and beautiful Jacqueline Ross. It was such an honor to record Jacqueline, and uh, she's just a dear uh, advisor and friend and ally, a fisherwoman from the coast here, and she speaks to us about a very iconic uh, food and medicine, uh, abalone. My name is Jacqueline Ross. I'm Jenner Pomo in Coast Miwok, and I currently live in Yolo County, California. My tribal territory is actually Sonoma and Marin counties on the coast of California. 
Traditional native foods are the foods we're supposed to be eating. And they're the foods that link us to the beginning of our time here. And so I believe they're the foods that are keyed to the way we're put together and the way we're supposed to live. So they're important to me because of that. But they're also important because when you live in, in the environment that they do, they're part of that system with you. It's all a network that, that works together. And it's better for the environment overall if you can eat that way and don't have to bring foods in from other places. We're very fortunate in having a lot of traditional native foods and we're doubly fortunate to have a lot of those still available to us. We may not be able to eat all of them, but we can see them still. <laughs> we can talk to them and have a relationship with them, which is good. Uh, one of our most valued and most delicious native foods is abalone. There used to be six to seven varieties of abalone in California, depending on who you talk to and which way you classify that scientifically. We use primarily the red abalone, which is the largest abalone species in the world. And abalone shows up in our earliest stories, or maybe I should say we show up in Abalone's earliest stories as, as having relationship. We, we acknowledge her as one of the oldest um, beings in our world, and she has a place in our early stories about how the world was made. And she's delicious and wonderful and has cousins all over the world. So when you eat Abalone, you become part of a very big family. Abalone is incredibly nutritious. So if you have nothing else, but you have Abalone, you can, you can live quite well and it can be dried and you can use you can use abalone throughout the year. It's a shellfish, a large shellfish, and we are able to use every part of it. You know, as a species, she's fantastic and as a food, almost complete utility with no waste, which is ideal. The muscle is the biggest part of the abalone outside of the shell. And so you use the it's called the the foot really, but it's basically one big muscle that clings onto rocks or whatever surface the abalone goes to. And then underneath the rim of the shell, all the organs are tucked. When you dress an abalone, you see everything. This is a perfect arrangement. Everything fits beautifully under the rim, you know, in this kind of semi-oval as you get in there. We use that viscera for bait. Abalone has a very, very powerful smell when it starts to decompose. It has a strong smell when she's fresh and alive also, but when she starts to decompose, it's really, really strong and, and quite strong enough to spread underwater really well. A lot of good food fish like abalone, and so I grew up fishing with abalone gut, which is great. So you get to use all that inside part. We actually cook the fringe as well, and the fringe are the tentacles that poke out underneath the shell of the abalone that they use to sense before they move. So we use the fringe. A lot of people don't use the fringe, but we use the fringe and we eat that and that's delicious too. So using all the organs, you're using all the fringe and tentacles. Um, if you cut out any part like the eye stems and whatnot, you can use those as fertilizer. You can use those as bait as well. And then the shell is really popular uh, for a number of uses and it's become, I think it's been a trade item for probably hundreds of years across the U.S. and you see people wearing abalone shawl from other parts of the world as well. So I think it's kind of universally recognized as being valuable and gorgeous and highly ornamental. So people use that. And then people sometimes use the whole shells to burn smudge or incense, you know, in their own areas. So it's popped up as, as a ceremonial item in a lot of traditional areas that are far, far, far from the ocean, which is, which is kind of nice too. Yeah. So, you know, full utility. 
full utility with abalone, which is great. You don't waste anything. The abalone fishery in California used to be very, very healthy, you know, to the point where people would go out and just not ever think there would be an end to abalone. And I remember as a child, um, my parents would dangle me under a rock, an exposed rock, so I could look at them. And you would see abalone hanging on top of each other, two to three deep underneath the rocks. And it was just a magnificent sight, you know, and fabulous to look at. And you, you felt so abundant when you would see those abalone with those healthy populations under the rock. And you can dangle under that same rock today and you will maybe just see two to five individuals if it's a healthy, a healthy area. So it's much, much diminished. When I was a child, I believe the, the limit was more around 10 to 12 abalone a day. And then it started diminishing. When I really was abalone a lot in my teens. Now in California, which is, as far as I know, the only place on the West Coast in the U.S. that you can legally harvest abalone, the limit is three abalone per day and a total, I believe, of 24 in a calendar year. And that's much, much diminished from, it, from what it was in my childhood, which was not that long ago. You know, the kind of childhood I had, I'm beginning to acknowledge is really privileged, but also maybe one of the last generations to have that. Even though I didn't go out daily to do that, we went out regularly enough and enough on a cycle that I know what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. We, we felt the impact with regulations. You know, we can no longer legally harvest some of the species that we have close relationship with. I can't have the same dishes on my table that my grandmother did. And she probably had less of them than her great-grandmother did. We walked those same places. You know, I acknowledge when I harvest an abalone that I'm the great-great-great descendant and they're the great-great-great descendant of people, species who knew each other. You know, we're basically sharing sharing our lineage that way, our, our relationship lineage down through time. And that's that's very important relationship. That's That goes back to the beginning. You know, and so to lose that or to alter that, to mutate that by poisoning one or the other or both of us is a very serious thing.
Melissa, you grew up along the Mendocino coast. This particular teaching with Jacqueline has got to be near and dear to your heart. It truly is. I mean, the the depth of loss that I, I hear with with Jacqueline as a Coast Miwok and Jenner Pomo person whose ancestors lived with, grew with, bred with, um, lived and loved on that coast with that abalone so co-evolved as a keystone species. I mean, the loss that she feels in her people and the faith in that species is so profound. I can only say from my one lifetime as, you know, even though I'm a native person, I'm not California Indian, so I've been a settler in the Pomo Territory and the Coast Miwok Territory, and I've learned so much about the beauty of this food. It's an intertidal species, and uh, how it's an indicator for the health of the oceans and of waters in general and the incredible meat that it provides, that delicious, savory, yummy food that we used to eat on the beaches up on the Lost Coast and fry them up after we gathered them on low tides. And then the, the shell that you have that is so exquisite and so glorious, and there's so many stories about abalone woman, and uh, Jacqueline always refers to her as a her, and how that is used in sacred regalia mm -hmm. and jewelry and ceremony. So the, the profound teachings of Abalone are, are so important, and I really appreciate and learn from her the beauty of, of honoring and, and praying for that species, mm -hmm. even though that relative, even though it is hard to gather. We can't gather it anymore. Mm. Yeah, and for me, meeting Jacqueline um, has been so crucial in understanding the reciprocal relationship between native people and their foods. I am originally from Colombia. My grandparents are Jewish. I'm a settler immigrant to these lands. And for me, it has been transformative to learn that um, the foods that, uh, that I've received, that I eat, that I get to benefit are completely linked to the people that have taken care of them for millennia mm. and that I have to acknowledge, honor, ask for permission and really think about where these foods come from and how linked they are to people. They're completely intricately um, linked and cared and how much they cared for each other. She really does change our relationship with food in this conversation. And speaking of uh, our relationships, I, I introduced myself as, you know, living here in Northern California all my life, but I come from the Hiaki people, or more popularly known, the Yaki people of the Sonora Desert right next to the coast. And I don't know if our people had abalone in our traditional ways, which I think this is a great opportunity for people to be listening to these podcasts and learning about, you know, each other, others, and ourselves. Mm. And uh, I had abalone once, and boy, was that something. It, it Wow, it was transformative. Power food. It, it wasn't even just like an emotional, spiritual thing. I mean, it really was a powerful you know, powerful food. And because I'm so excited right now, I want to know if this continued, you know, if we can continue this journey. And if so, where are we going next? Yes. Well, being based right here in our coastline on the west coast of Turtle Island, I think it's great to move north up into the deep mm. woods and uh, up into the Pacific Northwest where we dissolve that artificial boundary between <laughs> U.S. and Canada and we honor tribal sovereignty and the Wenatchee people and the Okanagan people of the inland Northwest where a coyote would 
go back and forth through those beautiful mountains in the high desert. And now we get to hear from Jeanette Armstrong and Marlo Sam, two beloved, beloved teachers and and friends and partners and collaborators uh, who are going to speak about um, the swimming ones, the salmon that actually make that journey from the Pacific Ocean all the way up inland to inland Washington State and British Columbia uh, and their salmon people. And they're going to talk a bit about the journey with those sacred relatives. My name is Marlo Sam. I'm uh, Wenatchee, uh, which is on the southern part of the uh, Okanagan Nation. And I'm Jeanette Armstrong, and I'm uh, Okanagan, uh, on the Canadian side of the uh, Okanagan Nation, which spans, as you know, Washington State and, and into British Columbia. The men and the women took active roles in hunting, and we had, you know, quite a large variety of game animals such as elk, moose, deer, mountain goats, mountain sheep. I guess even in the upper northern regions it would be um, the caribou also, you know, which was there. And a lot of smaller game, you know, like groundhogs and the, you know, the winged animals like grouse and, you know, I guess the geese and whatever, you know. But, uh, you know, as colonization and settlement occurred in our area, there was a real uh, depletion of the game animals, especially the larger ones, you know, and they, they were hunted out pretty heavily. You know, the populations were really decimated, and uh, things such as uh, the policies, uh, you know, that were implemented in the mid-1850s, you know, just further, you know, depleted the resources, and uh, the Hudson Bay trading of course, you know, decimated a lot of the uh, things like beaver and whatever. But uh, and then later on, you know, the dammings of the river really essentially, for the most part, wiped out, you know, all the traditional fishing that our people used to do with the salmon. It really impacted, you know, the the way our people interacted with the the land and the resources. Impacted the the culture because, you know, when the salmon were uh, taken away gathering sites, you know, essentially were deserted because, you know, you can't go down to uh, uh, the fishing sites because there's, you know, there's no salmon there, you know. So then that impacted uh, the people gathering at these sites, you know, all the social activities that happened, you know, during uh, the times that they would gather there. So then just further impacted, you know, because uh, there was ceremonies and there were songs and that occurred there at the times of the salmon. So essentially, you know, those songs, uh, they didn't die out, but, you know, you, you know, it's kind of like, how can you have a ceremony, a salmon ceremony, if there's no salmon? So it really impacted, you know, our people pretty severely, you know, and... Uh, the same could be said for the uh, the big game animals. You know, there's stories about the abundance of elk and moose and deer. You know, the populations were really uh, impacted severely. So, you know, the methods of gathering, you know, really were impacted severely when there was, uh, at some times, I think there were stories about where they, you know, had to go for days and days, you know, just tracking one animal or whatever, you know. so. 
there were some real severe shortages of game animals at some point, but there's been a little rebound, but it, I don't think it's ever reached or probably will ever reach the uh, numbers that it were once there. I, I look back at when I was a you know, young boy and I remember my dad and them teaching me how to shoot a gun and I was, I remember I was really little and of course the guns were so big that my uncle sawed off the barrel of a 22 and then they recarved the stock so that it would fit me and I don't remember how old I was but I was pretty little and they taught me how to shoot and they always bought ammunition for me so I could practice and I never ever wanted for uh, shells you know if I wanted to shoot I could go out and shoot and if I wanted to pretend hunt I remember I used to go out and you know just a little ways from the house and you know make believe I was hunting and whatever you know and I remember my grandmother when I actually did start to get uh, capable of uh, taking game or whatever she had fixed my gun she washed it with medicine and she told me that my gun was uh, the most deadly weapon in the world, that anything that I shot with it, whether I wounded it, it would die. So I always remembered that, you know, and um, so I start thinking about that when my grandson, he was nine years old. I guess mentally, you know, he was ready for, uh, to be trained or whatever. So I bought him a, a rifle and start training him to shoot and uh, his dad kind of gave that responsibility over to me. We'd just walk away from the house and there'd be light snow on the ground so we'd come across deer tracks and I'd tell them, well, which way are these tracks going, you know, why are they going that way? Everybody was sitting down below at our center and he'd come running up, you know, and as soon as I looked at him I was like, uh, what's what's going on? You know, he just came running up and he said, Grandma, I got a moose. <laughs> and, you know, like, of course, everybody could hear it, you know. So I introduced him to everybody and, and uh, said to them, you know, uh, that's what food sovereignty is about, that our grandchildren, you know, can say, Grandma, I got a moose, you know, I got a deer or I got you know, a rabbit or I got a, you know, grouse and, and we can eat good food, we can eat healthy food, what our bodies need. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. Well, that was a lot of fun listening to those stories. You know, hearing stories like that kind of reminds me of how important it is for us to kind of not just reflect back on our own lives, but in the lives of our our, our elders. Um, and as I was listening to it, I started thinking about the different, you know, salmon stories and the different plights of, you know, salmon for some tribes um, throughout. And I thought I had heard something about the salmon coming back. Is that, am I hearing the right thing here?
Absolutely. There's been an incredible revitalization movement of the sacred salmon in the Pacific Northwest, including the Okanagan and Wenatchee areas. And since we did these recordings uh, many moons ago, the salmon have come back to their territory. Wow. And it was thanks in large part to the efforts of Jeanette Armstrong and Marlo Sam and their community at the Anaukin Center, a real model native knowledge center where they teach language and native science and traditional food and recipes wow. and beading and drumming. And, and so at their center, they have a river flowing right underneath them and they brought back their sacred salmon huh. relatives and that, we, wow. we continue to yeah. have touch points with them yeah yeah it was so uh so special that one of their youth came to our youth program the guardians of the waters last summer mm. and she was so proud of her salmon that she brought salmon from home and she shared it with us and with our youth nice. and told her story what an amazing yeah. intergenerational i mean even just the span from the time with which this was first recorded to now watching the scope of the story come from multiple generations already even in just this short period of time well, 15 years may not be quite short, but I, it's it's a remarkable it's cycle given, you know, the history and the legacy of some of these relationships. Um, well, it seems like we're going on all these journeys and, and, and you know, with just the different programs um, we're talking about that you guys have all taken part in and have, you know, uh, really led. And you, 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 Nicola, you're mentioning the youth program and being able to work with the youth in these programs, having these recordings. Uh, it's so, so great. I feel like I'm on a journey just listening to the things that you've done, but I think we're on a journey again, I hope, to go somewhere else and learn a little bit more about food. Yeah. Where are we headed, guys? Well, I am so excited. We're heading to my tribal territory, Anishinaabe <laughs> Aking, the land of the Anishinaabe Confederacy in the Great Lakes. Uh, we're going to head east, across uh, the plains, over into those woodlands, um, to those beautiful lakes uh, where we grow, um, where the food that grows upon the water is found. And so the wonderful Winona LaDuke, who's been a major leader on so many fronts, uh, food sovereignty, land rights, women's rights, uh, she really helped indigenize the slow food movement that we are a part of through our Slow Food Turtle Island Association. And she's going to speak to us about Manomen, the good grain, our sacred wild rice. All right. Um, many, uh, many years ago, some prophets came to our people when we lived along the eastern seaboard, and those prophets instructed our people to go to the place where the food grows upon the water. And so our Anishinaabeg people took to our canoes, and we moved west, and we followed the w great waterways, and uh, we left many of our people along the way, our Wabanaki, our Penobscot relatives, and our uh, Odawa relatives, our Cree relatives, our Budawatomi relatives, and then our Menominee relatives, which actually means rice makers. <coughs> and we moved to the place where the food grows upon the water, which was wild rice, our Menomen. So it's a part of our creation story, our, our migration story, one of our most significant stories and about the identity of Anishinaabeg people. It is uh, really identifying about a centerpiece of our culture. It's one of our most sacred foods used for all our ceremonies and feasts. And... Uh, 
and, and has been that which has uh, provided for us for all these years. And our process is uh, we go out there and we have a, a first we offer our prayers for the rice. We put our tobacco out and then after we put our tobacco out, we um, go out on our lake with two sticks and a, a canoe and a zone pushing push pole. And you push out there on the lake and you're out there in the rice beds and you can look across or hear. Sometimes you can hear your other people across the lake or just see the poles go back and forth, which is a beautiful, beautiful sound and a beautiful thing to see. And uh, we knock that rice into our canoe and uh, listen to it as it falls in our canoe, go back and forth and back and forth across the lake. And then we come back in and we bring that rice in and our our canoes are filled up some and we put it in a sack and then bring it in and let it dry and then uh, traditionally we always rice in the morning and pretty much knock off in the afternoon and then in the afternoon when we come in then we uh, lay that rice out to dry and then we parch it over fire for a couple hours and then dance on that rice and uh, winnow it with a new scotch noggin and have a big feast and Thanksgiving and uh, sing songs or, you know, just celebrate our rice with big uh, Manomenike. Miigwech Manomen days, they call it. A lot of our wild rice powwows up there in that time. The University of Minnesota spent about 40 years trying to figure out how to domesticate wild rice and grow it in diked rice paddies using chemicals and fertilizers and combines so that they could have an insured harvest that required a lot of work and a lot of capital and a lot of fertilizers. And they called that progress. It really took a beating in our communities because we couldn't compete with the guy with the combine. Anheuser-Busch had a package called Onamia Wild Rice, and Onamia is the capital of the Malax band of Ojibwe. Onamia Wild Rice with two Indians in a canoe on the label, and it was California patty rice, and they were selling it as wild rice. And we were very upset with this, and so those guys were very upset with this, and so they took them to court, and we ended up with a law in Minnesota, which was a labeling law. In that law, um, says that if it is patty-grown rice, the words cultivated must be written in lettering no less than 50% the size of the words wild rice on the label. We created Native Harvest, um, which absorbed Equa Marketing as a subsidiary of the White Earth Land Recovery Project, and we began uh, and continued to try to capture the value added you know, for our wild rice and uh, each year selling more wild rice and securing more of the income for our own community and processing it there. So I think that by this year, we'll have a half million dollars worth of sales. The largest product is our wild rice. What we realized is that around 2000, one of our elders came to us. His name is Joe Lagarde, and he had done a lot of work at the University of Minnesota. And through his sources, he had discovered that the University of Minnesota had cracked the DNA sequence for wild rice. And he said, this is dangerous because it sets them up for some other things, could be for genetic engineering. So he took it to our organization and he said, uh, would you help us work on this? Because he knew that we were a tenacious bunch at the White Earth Land Recovery Project and that we would indeed work to try to fight this, you know. And the question was asked, I remember by um, one of the traditional leaders from uh, Mole Lake Band of Ojibwe, he said, who gave them the right to do that? Did Gichimana do to give them the right to do that? Did Nana Buju, who said they could do that? You know, and I just want to say that because I think that's the issue. It's like, who said you could change the DNA sequence of what the creator put here? You know, and so educating people about it and then educating people as to the significance of the threat and how they could transform that which the creator gave us into something which was something that they made and patented. 
And so then um, we went to the legislature of Minnesota, and um, we began there in a legislative battle in 2004. And the legislative battle was to get a law introduced that would ban the genetic engineering of wild rice. I think that people in Minnesota get the idea that genetically engineering wild rice will transform the lakes of Minnesota. You know, 10,000 genetically engineered lakes. And, uh, but it took the diligence of some young people to go down there and, and uh, walk the halls of the state legislature for, you know, months to make it happen. You know, which is how the bill got passed. Is someone just stuck with it? Wow. Winona. <laughs> that was a lot of information, um, a lot of history, a lot of narrative, a lot of, you know, uh, such a blessing to, to know where the food comes from and how it is, you know, harvested and all the obstacles that come with, you know, just trying to be yourself as, you know, the, our, our other speakers have said, it's really our, not just our engagement, but really is our root to the land, and that's our identity. The land and the food is our identity. And here we're seeing it, uh, not just in the past or in oral narrative, but in our traditional and modern struggle. Well, and it's in our, it's our current systems. I mean, Winona really places us inside of a current context where we are, as Indigenous people, finding our voices and our ways and our cultures and, and, and bringing them forward in a way that is meaningful and, and firmly rooted in the voices of our ancestors and something that also engages us in our contemporary framework. We have to face these challenges. We have to face the realities of our time. And she puts us square in the middle of it. Yeah. I love that. It's just very matter of fact. Yeah. Winona is a warrior and we need warriors. Yeah. It's just incredible that, you know, a simple native um, food, our first foods, they're so sacred to us. Wild rice, you know, gives us life just as the salmon give the Okanagan life and the abalone give Kosmiwak life. And we have treaties with these relatives. They go back to our creation stories and migration stories. And these are sacred obligations to care for these foods. And yet to do them in a modern context, we have to deal with universities, genetic modification we have to deal with the u.s forest service and their permitting process and spraying of herbicides and pesticides <laughs> we have to deal with national parks with tourists coming and gawking at our our sacred sites and it goes on and on so these kinds of sacred battles are necessary to assert our food sovereignty i also feel like she is helping all of us mm. by saying, what are we doing to our bodies mm. mm-hmm. uh, when we are uh, forced to consume <laughs> these foods that are mod- modified? Like our bodies are not used to, are not supposed to be eating these yeah. foods. It's like we think that that's the only thing available. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's one of the things that I know Rowan White, who who was in one of our very first episodes, she has a wonderful talk about uh, where she says, um, um, scarcity is a myth. We, we are, we've, you know, we've been fed this myth that there's not enough food in the world to feed us. And here we are returning to Jacqueline and Marlo and, and Winona and Jeanette, and we're remembering, and they're here to remind us, of course it's there. It's always been there. And not only that, it's not external to us. It's, it's right in our blood. It's singing the songs inside of us. Like the fight. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, we have to stand up. I mean, food sovereignty is about cooking our foods, gathering our foods, singing those songs, honoring those uh, treaties of obligation uh, to our sacred origins. But they're also about writing letters to city councils and going to protests and, you know, uh, really uniting against these these threats to, to poison and to damage our native foods. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not at the table... <laughs> You're on the menu. <laughs> and that's an original Winona LaDuke who is the first one to say we need to assert our sovereignty mm. to really uh, protect what is our traditional mm. land and our traditional relatives. And speaking of oral narratives, I'm sure that what you just said about, you know, you know, you may be the one on the table has got to be in all of the origin stories, you know, um, you know, that are available by native people, but also even in the European fables or anything around the world that would teach us the exact same thing is to make that kind of choice to, to be informed. And, you know, these people that, that you've recorded, you've spent time with and, and, uh, been able to get their stories and get their experiences is just a wealth of information. That's not just, you know, academic, let's say, but something for life. And I think that's what food sovereignty is about. You know, yeah. it's about life. So we're really all... excited about learning some more and hearing some more. Yeah. Don't well, we all possible. have our, our original instructions and they all come in, in the ways that our original instructions have always come across the world. And I think the beauty of, of this podcast and what we have been able to do here, and I'm really honored to just sit in the circle with you guys and talk about <laughs> these cool topics and really important things. But, um, really it's about, you know, how do we move forward and how do we carry forward and how would he keep sharing these stories? Yeah. I just want to add that I'm really thankful for being able to be here and to learn from all of you and all of our teachers, because as an ally, I really look to the first people of these lands that have so much experience and knowledge uh, of where we stand and what we need to do and how we can uh, survive and stay alive. In honor of that and these amazing archival pieces that we've been able to share today. So really, Melissa, these last, these three pieces that we shared today, this archival history, um, is really just a sneak peek for season two. Yes, it is, Sarah. We have learned so much from this season of the Native Seed Pod, this podcast polyculture of uh, diversity in song and language and stories and tradition, all looking at our relationship to food and the seeds that nourish us. So season two, we are going to really dive deep into this archival footage. We'll be hearing from elders like Pauline Estevez, Mm -hmm. Timbisha Shoshone elder, talking about uh, pine nuts and also bringing that to contemporary times, talking with youth who are actively working to revitalize their relationship with the pine nut today and the challenges of doing that. Uh, We also have other stories that Nicola was involved with recording from people all around the country. We Mm -hmm. did over 30 interviews all over U.S. and Canada and Hawaii. And maybe you want to share about a couple of interviews you did yeah, we interviewed David Wampanoag uh, about the oyster farm um, that 
his ancestors have been taken care of for years and that he's taken care of now and they have a thriving uh, business that really helps the tribe. We also have Janie Luster, who is an alligator cook um, from the Huma people of Louisiana down Mm. in the the bayou. Uh, What an amazing (laughs) food tradition of, of, you know, harvesting from that rich land, swamp land and coastal land and humid land. I think we'll also be hearing next season from Lois Frank and Walter Whitewater talking about these amazing native chefs and the work that they're doing in um, uh, all around the southwest and working in nutrition and revitalization of native diets as a way for encouraging health and well-being and and reconnection to tradition all across the landscape i think next season um, is just going to be fantastic So don't forget to come back and keep joining us. Never knew I was going to be excited about food this much. (laughs) This much. Look at what we have done. We've inspired you. Well, and speaking of inspiration, I just want to thank all of the incredible contributors to our Native Seed podcast this first inaugural season. All of the generous guests and friends from the four directions who shared their food knowledge with us. Uh, indigenous seed keepers, fisherwomen, corn farmers, uh, food justice activists, uh, professors, agroecologists. Really, thank you for these incredible polycultural conversations. And, you know, many of our special guests also generously contributed their song, their voice, and music in their native language, uh, starting with Rowan White and Leroy Little Bear, Robin Kimmerer. Uh, we're so grateful to them sharing so much on this season uh, with you. And I'd like to also give a special thanks to all of the Native musicians and artists who shared their songs with us in their own languages, starting with Eddie Madrill, El Frank Manriquez, Kenyon Sayers Roods, Enrique Samon, Wobleza de Labat, Ayapishlo, and of course, the, the world-renowned Ayerto Moriera, Tito La Rosa, and Glenn Velez. We're so deeply grateful um, for all of the music uh, that created such a rich soundscape. And those soundscapes wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic sound engineer and composer Colin Farish, who edited these pieces together, and our wonderful co-producer Mateo Inojosa, our assistants Luke Repe, Yvonne Martinez, and Malia Mannix. And a very special thanks to Sarah Moncada Madrill, who co-produced and co-hosted this season with me. I'm Melissa Nelson, your virtual pollinator. So thank you, Chi Chi Miigwech. Yawa Howie, Yawa Howie, Yawa Howie, Ochima. Yawa howie, yawa howie, yawa howie, ochima, ochima, ochima.